you have a copy of God's Word this morning, please open it to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Start in verse 11. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning again, and we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless our time together corporately. We ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word. I pray as a weak vessel of clay that you would uphold me and use me to glorify you through the preaching of your word. Guard your people from anything false I may say as I'm a fallible man, but your word is infallible and it is inerrant and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, Lord, that your word would have victory in us this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would use your word to exalt your name and exalt Christ and humble us and cause us to feel our weakness and frailty and our proneness to wander and at the same time rejoice in your goodness and that you would continue to knit our hearts in the bonds of Christ. You have called us to unity But unity has parameters. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring understanding to our hearts and minds. Grant us courage to walk and to live the Christian life. Grant us understanding so that we might stand strong and courageous, trusting and leaning upon you to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one that come our way. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I want to do, uh, I'm, I'm really going to zoom in this morning on verse 12. Um, I'm, I'm going to do my very best to, to close out Galatians before I head to El Salvador. Um, and I think I can do it. So I'm going to ask you guys to listen fast. And, but I, 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 I want to zoom in on verse 12 because I want to clarify something from last week. And a, a couple of clarifying thoughts regarding doing good. Last week I preached on you know, do not grow weary in doing good. Do, do good to, to everyone, but especially what the household of faith, the church. And so a, a good question uh, was asked of me last Sunday after the sermon. And, and, uh, and, and I want to say this to, to all of you. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate questions. Um, because here, here's the thing. Whenever, whenever someone's when I, when I get up here and preach or one of the elders preach or your Sunday school teacher teaches a Sunday school lesson, here's the reality of it. You can't say everything whenever you say something or whenever you say something, you won't say anything. And what I mean by that is you'll remember that, that for weeks I laid down the doctrine of justification so that we would have a great and clear understanding as we moved into the doctrine of sanctification. And so then sometimes when you're teaching on a doctrine that you've laid a foundation for, someone can take you out of context and misunderstand what you say. And, and I would rather you come and ask a clarifying question than take me out of context. Does that make sense? And so I encourage... Um, I, I'm a fallible man. I, maybe I need to be corrected, or maybe the context need to, needs to be re-given so, so that it's understood correctly. And so a, a good question was asked last Sunday in, in, in a good spirit, um, and, and I thought it was helpful. And, and I want to I kind of phrase that question. Forgive me for not remembering it verbatim. Um, but a, a good question was asked regarding the sermon on doing good. The question was, and, and again, I'm pulling from memory here. This is not a quote. Is doing, good, is doing good sometimes withholding or not doing good? Now, this is my, I, I'm not going to tell you who asked the question because I'm paraphrasing and I'm doing it from memory. And I, I think they asked it better than I just said it. But you understand the question is, you know, some, sometimes, uh, you know, we get into this mode of doing good and, and, and when we do certain things, and I talked about this, um, sometimes we, we think we're doing good and we're actually doing harm. You remember when I talked about this a few weeks ago, especially in missions, when we're, we're just going over and we're just, oh, all your needs, here you go, we're Americans, we're rich, here you go. And, and erroneously, and maybe innocently, we're, we're creating in them that solutions must come outside of themselves and their relationship with God. Oh, well, if we want, well, what's the next thing we need? Well, we, we, we better wait for those rich people to come over and get it to us. And so, in the same thing, when we're doing good to people, sometimes we can actually be doing harm. But I, wanna, I want us to make sure that, that we state this correctly, because if we're doing harm, we're not really doing good. 
Does that make sense? So withholding is not actually withholding good. You're doing good by withholding. Okay? Sometimes withholding, and, and I don't want I don't, I don't to get too explicit on, on a certain circumstance. This person didn't bring up a specific circumstance, but as a pastor of, I don't know, maybe 23 years now, I've been in situations of counseling where you've had to counsel someone, you can't do that anymore. Or that, that may not be the wisest decision anymore. I know that you, you, you want it to be good, right? You want it to be good. You want it to be received and, and handled as good, but it, it's proven itself to not be handled as good and, and being turned to harm. So we could, we could get into a lot of different contexts and situations and discuss what one should do, but here, here is the overriding context or evaluation. When we talk, and I think this saves us from thinking that, we're well, if I withhold, I'm not doing good. Sometimes withholding is doing good. Does that make sense? I want, I want us to be clear. Sometimes not giving the person what they think they need is good. Because the last time you gave them what they thought they needed, they used it for evil and not good. They used it for harm to themselves and not good. So we have to figure out a way to, to continue to do good without giving them something that they can turn into evil, right? And so I, I think that I want to give us something that I think is clarifying in this so that we know that even when we're withholding, we can do good in withholding. When we talk about doing good, it, it must be defined biblically, which is the only kind of good. The only kind of good is biblical good. And so here's the thing. We must not think that we or anyone else other than God is the definer of what is good. And therefore, God must be the definer of what is actually a good work. We do not get to just do to others and call it good because we may have sacrificed something of ourselves. We do not get to just do to others and call it good unless God and his word calls it good. I want to read from the London Baptist Confession 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 16, paragraph 1. And, and I think they state this very clear. They say, good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. Amen. Is that not freeing? Is that not helpful to understand? Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good. It doesn't matter how good someone's intentions are, if God does not define it as a good work, it is not a good work. 
So in our doing good works, doing good towards others, we do so only when those works are called good by God. And we can only do those good works by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And in the context of doing good towards someone, we can pray for them without giving them maybe the physical things that they're crying out for because those physical things they will use to bring them harm. We can pray for them. We can speak the gospel in their lives. And, of course, I'm not, I'm not promoting not helping someone that has a physical need. James says if someone comes to you and it's freezing outside, I, I, I loved talking about this when we were in North Dakota, right? Because nobody in their right mind in North Dakota during a blizzard, if somebody came to their front door and said, man, I need to get warm, be like, you know, Chuck lives down the road about three miles. Have fun. You'll die if you walk three miles to Chuck's house. Sorry, Chuck, I didn't mean to pick on your name. Right? So, so I'm not talking about that. You, I, think, I think without me getting into specifics, because there's all, all kinds of different contexts, there's times where you can give people, let's say money, in order to help them in the physical needs that you hope they'll use it for, and they turn it and they use that money for things that are bringing great harm to them and those around them. Does that make sense? So I'm not talking about not giving someone something to eat when they're hungry or something that will warm them when they're freezing. But at the same time, we also must understand that good works are defined by God and God alone, not by the intentions of our hearts. No matter how meaningful you are, no matter how much you sacrifice in doing the good work, it does not then and therefore make it a good work. Only God can define it as a good work. And so in those situations, which can be, listen to me, those kind of situations can be heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, just drowning in sorrow. Never an easy situation when you're in a situation like that. So all we can do is pray that God will give us discernment on how to do good works towards that person in that context and ask for counsel because there's safety in a multitude of godly counsel. Now, that's last week. I wanted to clarify that because I thought it was a good question and I thought that it was, it was helpful to clarify. So now I want to jump into verse 11. See with, Paul says here, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I want to just say just a few words about this. It's not strange or new or particular to Galatians that Paul closes the letter with his own signature and final word of greeting. As a matter of fact, he says, I, I do this so that you know it's me. But what is noticeable and stands out here is that it is more than his name and a final greeting. That's the norm. The norm is I, Paul, and then a final, a final small greeting so that you'll know that it's coming from him. Paul picks up the pen and makes some closing statements 
about the important truths of this epistle. It's as if Paul says, I'm going to write more than I normally do because I want to emphasize the importance of what I've said. And we'll handle those more in depth. But Paul takes up the pen and he says, listen, for our cultural vernacular, I'm writing in size 20 font here, not 12, like the memorandums from the office. I'm going to go big. I want you to see it. I want you to hear me in the emphasis of me writing this. It's more than I normally do because what I'm saying here is absolutely critical for you to understand. So Paul is want to emphasize, he's, he's emphasizing the importance of what he has said by restating a few major themes of the epistle in his own handwriting. So we will, at least next week, continue revisiting what Paul is reemphasizing. But what I, what I want us to look at here is that Paul, Paul goes into exposing the motives of the false teachers. Now, I also want to caution us that Paul's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And unless someone states their motives, we really, we really don't know, right? We're, we're not omniscient. Um, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exposes the motives of the false teachers. And he says in verse 12, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So the title of the sermon was something like Avoiding Persecution is Revealing or something like that. Avoiding Persecution is Revealing. And Paul says they're denying the cross in order to avoid persecution. Why would someone deny the doctrine of justification to avoid persecution? Well, it's an easy answer. If those who oppose such will persecute you for it, and comfort is more important to you than the cross of Christ, then you will go where your heart goes. Right? If, if the cross is your heart, and your heart is always where your treasure is, Jesus said. It's always following what you treasure. If your heart is the cross, you won't avoid it for persecution. But if the comforts of this world and the acceptance of this world is really where your treasure is, then you will abandon the cross so that you avoid persecution. What you treasure is what you guard with your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. 
Now, I want to I give us an idea, and, and, and you may remember this, but I want to remind us of the sort of persecution that was going on in these days regarding the cross of Christ and regarding the Jewish people. You'll recall, you'll recall the story of the blind son being healed. Very well-known story. And they're, they're sitting, you know, the, the blind man says, He healed me! And they say, call his parents in. And now the parents are being questioned. And they ask the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And then we're given this parenthetical insight by the Holy Spirit into the motives of the parents for why they said what they said. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. How about that for parents? You ask him, let him answer, and, and, and if you're going to kick anybody out of the synagogue, if you're going to disinherit anybody, if you're going to make anybody be an exile in the land, let it be him, not us. Because our treasure is in our ethnic identity. Our treasure is in our cultural identity. Our treasure is in the comforts that we gain from being um, accepted in this land. And this was a huge sacrifice. It really was. I, I don't want to belittle what was at stake. To stand for Christ at the cost of being cast out, it would have spread, your name would have been known, you would have been excommunicated, shunned from society, shunned by your neighbors, shunned by the marketplace, despised and rejected by your countrymen, to have no one hire you, to have no one buy your goods to be mistreated at every corner by those to whom you use to get along. It meant not only discomfort, but the possibility of losing one's livelihood and the daily means to live. It may mean that you have to pick up and start anew somewhere else, which was nearly a death sentence in those days. Is the cross of Christ worth it? That's what Paul's saying. And he gives us his answer in a couple of verses. Is the cross of Christ worth it? And the answer is only if you understand it. 
If you don't truly understand it, then you will not think it is worthy of such detriment to one's physical, temporal life. Isn't that exactly what Jesus teaches in the parable of the soils? I'm not going to go through the whole parable, but I want to just give us the reasons, right? The reasons that the soils did what they did. And I'm going to look at Mark and Matthew here. You remember the rocky ground. The rocky ground, they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, the word, the gospel, the cross, when persecution arises on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, immediately what? They fall away. They abandon the cross. Then there's the seed that fell among the thorns. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, the comforts, of the world, right? The acceptance of the culture. When those things enter in and they're threatened, when those things are threatened, comfort of life, temporal pleasures, peer acceptance, economic ease, social status, when those things are threatened, we're told they choke out the cross. And then we have the good soil. Matthew 13, 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He or she indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and in another 60 and in another 30. In what case? What case are you talking about? I'll tell you what case. When persecution came and threatened the comforts of the world and the, and the economic status and the social status and the pleasure, the temporal pleasures of life, what endured in their hearts was not those things being threatened, but their love and appreciation and understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the endurance of those things bore fruit that we can't measure. And I want us to hear that. The seed that was sown on the good soil, what differentiates the soils? What differentiates? What is, what is this marker of the good soil from the others? And it's this. It is understanding that differentiates. 
Not, not just an intellectual understanding. That's not enough. It's an intellectual understanding that goes to the heart, and the heart grabs on it and guards it with its, infect, with its affections and loyalties. And, it, and if you go to the beginning of that parable, it says, when someone doesn't understand, that's when the, the Satan comes in and he, and he chokes out the word. So what caused the person, the good soil, to endure the persecution and the tribulation and to get through the persecution and the tribulation and on the other side bear fruit, good fruit for the glory of God? It is because they understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is because they understand the significance and the necessity of the cross. They understand that the cross is Christ doing and accomplishing on their behalf what they could never do and what they never would have wanted to do. Let me rephrase that because I, I said you. I want to use a different pronoun. It's because we understand the significance and the necessity of the cross of Jesus Christ and that Christ did it to accomplish for us what we could not do and we would have never wanted if it was not for the work of the Holy Spirit to quicken us and make us realize that we were in need, that we were weak, that we were sick and needed a physician. If you do not truly understand the cross of Christ, you will not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And here in the context of Galatians, the false teachers are trying to appear as if they're not abandoning the cross. And this is, this is the thing. This is, this is the trickiness of the false teachers, right? This is the trickiness of, of cultural Christianity today. The false teachers are trying to appear as if they're not abandoning the cross. And we need to understand that the, the, that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? Mixing darkness with light to make it dim. The false teachers are trying to appear as if they're not abandoning the cross while at the same time adding to it. And here's what Paul's been teaching the whole epistle, and he's reemphasizing here, and that is this. To add to the work of Christ with anything is to abandon the entire work of Jesus Christ. <coughs> Today, I say especially in America, I think it is especially in America, and, and, and also America is what I know. <laughs> right? Right? 
But I think it is, especially in America. Because I'll tell you what, Christianity is doing a lot better in some other countries. But today, especially in America, we have the same types of abandoning going on. Oh, we'll still say the cross, but we suck the meaning out of it. We make it hollow. It's just a cliche. It's just a word to sound Christian. There's really nothing behind the cross or behind that doctrine in many churches in America. We take sin and we make it almost non-existent in the preaching and doctrine of many churches. And yet it is sin. Sin is the very reason the cross had to occur. And yet those same churches and those same leaders and those same denominations will still keep the cross and Christ's death in their doctrine. But when you deny the sinfulness of sin, you at the same time diminish the necessity of the cross. You, you deny the value, the infinite value of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in our culture, sin has been so diminished that most sin is now okay. It's not really sin. We, we have a loud voice in America that calls good evil and evil good. To preach against sin is evil. To accept sin is good in our country. Most sin is okay now and not really sin in so many churches today. And so then Christ must have really and truly only needed to die for the really, really bad people. That's what it equals to. And so Christ crucified is really no longer needed in the pulpit, only in prison ministries. I mean, it's what it amounts to. Because it's only really for the really bad people. Because sin's not really sin anymore. It's not, sin's not really repugnant to God anymore. Sin's really not going to cast you into eternal damnation anymore. Why is this happening today? It's happening today for the same reason it happened back then in Galatians and in the beginnings of the churches. Why are churches and church leaders abandoning the cross yet seeking to make it seem as if they are not? I mean, nobody's being threatened with exile that I know of in America. But there are many more reasons to abandon the cross of Christ than just exile.
Today, church leaders, church, churches, denominations abandon the cross of Christ because they don't want to maybe lose your nonprofit tax status. It's true. Or they don't want to lose their finances or their offerings. Because there's some big givers in the church and they've changed their mind about sin and they've come to the leadership and they said, if we keep talking about this in this way, you won't get a dime from us anymore. Or maybe, maybe the government will threaten with the loss of religious freedom. That's starting to happen in certain places. <clears throat> or, and I think this is a big one, you may lose positive publicity. You may lose positive publicity. And so what happens today happened back then. What happens is we will blend doctrine. We will be inclusive to make both parties happy. And then nothing from that list will go away. And they blend doctrine, Paul says, because remember, they're blending, they're trying to blend the cross of Christ and circumcision, keeping the law. And Paul says, if you add anything to Christ, you lose all of Christ. And so there is a blending of doctrine only to advance themselves, Paul says, still alive today. Today in our culture, being more inclusive, uh, we live in a climate that it seems more accepting, right? You're more accepting. And therefore, it's more widely accepted by the public. It's more popular among the masses. It's more received in our cultural climate. And this is often made attractive to the undiscerning by labeling it unity. We're doing this to unite us so that we can hold hands and show the unity that we have together to the masses. Sometimes that's a good thing, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. And I say it's a good thing when, when, when doctrine's not uh, watered down, right? <clears throat> and they say, isn't unity great? Aren't we called to unity? Well, listen, the unity that we're called to is the unity of God's word. We are called to the unity of doctrine. We are not called to unity at the expense of God's word. We are not called to unity at the expense of God's commands. We are not called to unity at the expense of God's doctrine. We're not called to unity at the expense of the gospel. Because when we're willing to do that, there may be some form of unity, but it will be a temporal unity that leads to death. And 
Unity at the cost of truth is unity at the cost of disunity. Unity at the cost of truth is unity at the cost of disunity. And what I mean by that is when truth is being set aside, you are unifying people. Hear me on this. You are unifying people at the cost of being disunited from God. Paul says, oh, they want to they talk unity, do they? Well, let's just, let's just blend what, what, what you believe and what we believe, and we can say, yes, the cross, but also the law, keeping the law circumcised. You have to do that in order to be in covenant with Christ. And Paul says, no. If you accept that, you will be anathema from God. You want that kind of unity, it's at the cost of being disunited from God, your only hope. But to those who are, oh, I'm going long, aren't I? I don't usually pay attention to the clock, just so y'all know. All right, I don't have a whole lot. Just wrap it up today. This is, we're, look at verse 14. No, just but to the, I'll, I'll close. But to, to those who are willing to abandon the cross, to blend truth with falsehood, truth to those people are never according to God. It is according to the cultural climate of the day. And oh, how culture changes. Amen? If you don't understand the cross and its significance, if there is not a spiritual understanding given by the Holy Spirit, you will use the cross of Christ for personal gain or you will abandon the cross of Christ to circumvent personal loss. If you do not understand the cross of Jesus Christ spiritually, you will use the cross of Christ for personal gain, or you will abandon the cross of Christ to circumvent personal loss. So we see the cross being emptied of truth here in Galatia and here in our own country. And it's being abandoned for the sake of popularity, for the sake of ease of life in this life, for the temporal comforts of this world and so on. And it is an indication to the discerning that they care not for, nor do they truly understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says this beautiful statement, and it shows, and we'll handle it in more depth, but it shows the depth of his understanding of the cross and its significance. He says, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ.
There is no other thing in life besides the cross. There is nothing other significance, no greater significance than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is everything. And if you understand the significance of the cross for the world and for yourself, then you understand that the cross is something that cannot be denied nor walked away from. It signifies our hope, our forgiveness, our redemption, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, our eternal state. All that we are is founded in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so to abandon it would be to abandon self. Amen? It's, it's so much to me that if I were to abandon the cross, I would be abandoning myself and all hope. And all pleasure and all satisfaction and all glory and everything that really matters. I can't walk away from the cross of Christ because it's everything to me. That's what Paul's saying. It's everything. So we praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that delivers us from the idols of this world and delivers us into the, the kingdom of your beloved Son in which there is eternal joy, in which there is forgiveness for all our sins, in which, in which we have, have redemption Reconciliation, adoption, where we can cry out, Abba, Father. What a joy it is to know that we have been made partakers of Christ, that we have been united to Christ. And everything that we need for all of that to take place, we find the fullness of in Jesus and in his new covenant that he promises those things to us if we put our faith in him. And we thank you for that, Lord. We rejoice in it. And we thank you that as we sang earlier, Lord, that you hold us fast that you hold us in your hands, that you keep us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we